John Wesley was asked one time why the Methodist revival spread, and he simply said, our people die well. He meant that. He meant our people die well. They have assurance of God's love because they understand that it's not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. And our people die well. And to die well is a great gift and a great and powerful witness. Um, how does that connect to what we're going to talk about tonight? Well, we're going to talk for the next few weeks about the last days of Jesus. If anybody died well, it was him. And it is fascinating. I think I mentioned this last week, that if you think of the gospel accounts as mere biographies, they're really strange. They don't talk about a lot of the things that you would expect in a biography. And for instance, the gospel of John spends half of the book narrating the last week of his life, which is a way of saying, pay attention to the last days of Jesus. It really matters. And there's some really beautiful, powerful things that get revealed this way. And some of these things, you know, some of the most significant things, you don't realize them at the time that they're significant. I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about... Um, how when I was in, I was probably ninth grade, I would obsessively read Guitar Player magazine. <laughs> yeah, I read every issue of Guitar Player magazine. I read a lot of books in sixth grade. I remember I won the reading contest for my whole school. Um, and then I got into Guitar Player magazine and I didn't really read books anymore until out of college. Well, I remember, you know, one of the things that comes through, especially when you were reading Guitar Player Magazine in the 70s, because right, I graduated high school in 1982, so I'm, I'm reading Guitar Player Magazine in the late 70s, and this is true, um, like every guy that played guitar, and they were almost all guys except Nancy Wilson, do you know who she is? She plays with heart, right? So she's like the one, you know, female guitar player in the 70s, like classic rock world. But uh, all these guys, basically the one theme they'd say, they all started playing guitar because they were too shy to meet women any other way. And, and probably half of them would also mention the fact that they didn't want to dance. And the best way to make sure you never had to dance was to play in a band. Um, now, I didn't like to dance, but that's not why I started playing guitar. I was thinking about why I started playing guitar. I, the reason I started playing guitar was out of jealousy. Literally, it, I think it was ninth grade, Christmas. My mom had no idea. What do you get a ninth grade boy for Christmas? They didn't have video games back then. I didn't like toys. I wasn't really that into sports. So she said, you know, your friend Michael started playing guitar. And Michael and I were very competitive. And she said, you know, Michael did so well on the first guitar book, you know, book number one, that he skipped book number two completely and went straight to book number three. Do you want to play guitar? And I said, yeah, I want to play guitar. Now, when I look back over my life, that's, you know, a pretty silly reason to start playing guitar, something that's been pretty significant as my life has unfolded. Sometimes the really important things, you don't really notice it at the time. And one of the things I love about this chapter, John chapter 12, is it's filled with things they, where, where John's saying, you know, we didn't really understand this at the time, but later we understood it. We didn't understand this at the time, but later we understood it. So as we dig into this, as we dig into this, look at what Jesus does and how he helps us understand what really matters. 
Let's look at John chapter 12. We're going to read 1 through 19. Follow along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, excuse me, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that means Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray together and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you that you came, that you lived, that you patiently explained and demonstrated over and over again what you were about. We pray, Lord, that you would help us even tonight to have ears to hear and eyes to see. To that end, we pray, send your spirit to help us. Amen. Uh, so, the title of this message, Jesus the Gentle King Anointed for Death. And, and there is, actually, I, I think it's helpful sometimes to read larger portions. You might normally, like, study one part of this chapter and then the next part. But seeing the two of these stories connected together is actually pretty interesting. You know, when you, when you look back at these sorts of things, like John and the other disciples must have looked back at these things, they must have been like, man, how did we not see it? 
How did we not understand it? But I think they also, as they look back on it, would have been really amazed to think we were part of something so much bigger than we had any idea of at the time. Doesn't it make you feel that way? Sometimes you look back your life, you look at what seems so insignificant that turns out to be incredibly significant. Does it ever give you the sense that you're part of something bigger, that there's a bigger story being told? That's the picture we get here. Jesus believes that what's going on is very significant. But as you, as you look at this, and we look a little more deeper into it, you find this is, this is about hugely significant things that aren't fully understood at the time. But Jesus is in control, he's intentional, he's deliberate in what he's doing. The life of Jesus was not just a random series of events. And the Gospel of John in particular points this out. Jesus knows what he's doing, but he seems to be the only one to see it. He didn't just die, he purposely walks towards his death. And the Gospel of John, I'm going to show you here, makes that very clear, that he knows what he's doing, and he's driving towards his encounter with death. The big picture is on his mind constantly. If you want to understand who the real Jesus is, you need to see this. The real Jesus is intentional and determined to go to the cross. He's fully aware of what's going on. He's fully in control. And he is undeterred. And if we can see that, it's a powerful, powerful truth to use against our doubts and fears. So how does Jesus intentionally try to help us see the big picture? Two things I want to say overall, and then we'll dig into the anointing and the Passover, or anointing and the uh, triumphal entry in particular. First is interesting, he uses cryptic sayings. Like when he says this in verse 7, leave her alone, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. I don't think he expected the disciples to understand what he's talking about. Like Jesus does this sometimes, doesn't he? Like you think you're, he's talking about one thing and then all of a sudden he's like talking about something else and you're like, whoa, what, what just happened? But when he does this, do you see what he's doing is he's inviting us to slow down, to stop, and to ponder. Jesus doesn't fit into nice little categories. Just when you think you're kind of tracking with him, he kind of he, he throws this monkey wrench in there, which causes you to go, oh, hold on. Like, what's going on? What is he talking about? My burial? What? So he uses these kinds of words, these cryptic sayings that invite us to ponder what's going on. Words that should humble us and words which should indicate to us maybe there's more going on here than it seems at first. And the other thing I think he does to kind of say, look, there's more going on here. Not only does he use cryptic sayings, but he connects the events to Scripture. Scripture is the meta-narrative. It's the story. It has a big story that all the small stories fit into. And one of the ways you see that is the way he chooses to ride on a donkey 
so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Fairly obscure Scripture from one of the minor prophets, but he's trying to press people to think differently about what's going on, and thus to think differently about who he is. He's fully aware of what's going on. You see that in the anointing. So let's look at that. Look at the beginning here. They make very clear. John wants to make sure you understand. Jesus came to Bethany, okay, which is not in Jerusalem, but it's outside of it. It's close enough that there were Jews from Jerusalem mourning when Lazarus had died. Okay? John's gospel tells us that. That when Lazarus was dead in the grave... There's Jews from Jerusalem there mourning him. So when Jesus goes there to raise Lazarus from the dead, he knows that word of what he's doing is going to get back to the Jewish leadership and the chief priests in Jerusalem. And John's gospel here wants to make sure you understand. Jesus came to Bethany. Look what he says. Where Jesus lived, whom, or sorry, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So it's like billboard here. Hey, remember Bethany? Bethany is the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and now Jesus is going back there. Not only is he going back there, he's not going back there quietly. He's going back there for a dinner that's being given in his honor. And Lazarus is there, and then Mary does her thing. We'll talk about that in a second. But then you also see down in verse 9, there's a large crowd of Jews who found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. And again, just in case you missed it, whom Jesus raised from the dead. What you actually need to understand is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he doesn't do it just because he misses his friend. He does it because he knows that that will seal his death sentence. It's very clear. When he goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, he's saying, death, let's go. Now he's going back to Bethany. Is he crazy? Like this is what is getting, this is what's going to bring about his death. He's not crazy. He's fully aware and he's intentional in what he's doing. He knows the authorities are getting desperate. They don't want to just kill Jesus. Now they want to kill poor Lazarus too. They want to kill Lazarus too. They want to do away with all of the evidence. He does this intentionally. And you know he's doing it intentionally because of what he says about Mary's act. When Mary anoints him with this perfume, he says this was intended. This didn't just happen. This was intended. That means there's a God on the throne working out all things for his purposes, and this was intended for the day of my burial. You're like, what? Where did that come from? Where it came from is because he knows. He knows what he's doing. He's making it happen. He's anointed for death because death is what's deserved by traitors. And that's the state of the human 
race. He dies for rebellious traitors intentionally and willingly. Now, when you look at this, extravagant worship. You know, D.A. Carson rightly points out that if Jesus is a mere man, this is really screwed up. Like, you know, there are these places, there's another place similar to this where Jesus heals these lepers, and one of them comes back. Most of them just go on their way. One of them comes back, falls at Jesus' feet. The, the word in the Greek used is worships him. And Jesus does not say, get up, you blasphemer. I'm just a mere man. No, what does he say? Where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? They should all be worshiping me. Don't tell me Jesus never claimed to be God. He accepted worship. He complained when the other nine lepers didn't give it to him. When she gives up this gift, either it's a family inheritance or, or she's fabulously wealthy, we're not sure, but it's an extravagant waste, if you will. And he doesn't complain. He says it's right. It's fitting to use this for anointing for my burial. If he's just a normal man, just a good teacher, that's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. It's incredibly arrogant for him to say, I deserve this. But when we see Jesus for who he is, nothing is too precious. And Mary sees him for who he is. Now, it's pretty interesting, of course, how often the women are the ones who understand what's going on in a culture where their testimony couldn't be admitted into a court of law. And it's one of these amazing things. If you were going to write a gospel and try and make this stuff up, you definitely wouldn't have included women as the ones who are the witnesses and the ones who understand what's going on, for what it's worth. Now, Jesus' Judas's objection seems very logical, doesn't it? Even though his motivation is evil, it seems like a waste. And actually, in the other gospels, when they record this story, you see that Judas wasn't the only one who um, objects like this. Some of the others did, too. Which is, you know, this is a, a strong thing, but hear this. One of the things you see here is that even caring for the poor can be a way of neglecting to give proper honor to Jesus. I'm not saying that it is that, but it can be. It can be. Now, Jesus rebukes Judas sharply. But what is his rebuke? His rebuke isn't, well, we should just waste money all the time. No, his rebuke is, you're not seeing the big picture. You don't understand who I am. But you know what's really interesting is if you look at the parallel passage to this story in Mark 14, you'll see that this is the final straw for Judas. When Jesus rebukes him here, Mark 14 shows that's what finally drives Judas to betray Jesus. We also see his control of the situation, his intentionality when we look at the triumphal entry. Now think about the situation. The Passover was the great festival. All the pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. If Jesus ever wanted to lead a rebellion against Rome, now was the time. Immense crowds. Josephus, who's a Jewish Roman historian, can't always be trusted. He estimated the crowd at Pentecost 30 years after this as being 2.7 million people. 
That's what, he, that's what Josephus writes. Now, he may be exaggerating. We think he probably is. But regardless, this is an immense crowd. Jesus has an army at his disposal. And they are whipped up into a state of nationalistic fervor. They were expecting a king who would come, who would drive out the Roman occupiers. And if there was ever a dangerous time, it was Passover. It's a pivotal moment. What will Jesus do? Even the Pharisees, you see, down in verse 19, they're like, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. Jesus has the crowd. Pharisees realize it. The crowd is like dry tinder, ready to burst into flames with just a little spark. So what does Jesus do? He deliberately confuses their expectations to ride in, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And when you look at the other Gospels, you realize that he arranged for the donkey to be there. Like when you read John's Gospel, you might be like, oh, that's interesting. Did he know a donkey would be there? And then you read the other Gospel, you're like, no. He sent it to his disciples in and say, hey, get a donkey, get a room. Like he arranged it all. But see, that fits into what I'm telling you here. Jesus is intentionally doing this. And he's doing this to confound their understanding of who the Messiah is and what he will do by fulfilling the prophecy from the minor prophet, Zechariah. Chapter 9, verses 9 through 11 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation in the old testament prophecy that word salvation is not like your soul being saved from heaven that's salvation that means the messiah is going to come and make everything right and for the jews the main thing that was wrong was that their land was not their own the wretched romans were occupying them righteous having salvation that's war language But then the next phrase, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, that doesn't make any sense. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. What an image of hopelessness to be trapped in a waterless pit. This is, but this is a bizarre prophecy. It, it like seems to contradict itself. He's going to be righteous and bring salvation, but he's going to come in on a donkey and proclaim peace to the nations. The battle bow will not be used by him. It will be broken. There's another place actually in Hosea where it has a similar image where it says that the battle bow will be broken when he marries himself to his people. Beautiful imagery. So Jesus comes as the gentle king anointed for death. He comes as the gentle king to end the treason and the warfare by living and dying in the place of traitors. Augustus Toplady, who wrote the hymn Rock of Ages, said it so beautifully, one of my favorite lines in English hymnody, when he says, 
O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all hath suffered death to set his prisoner free. And that's what you see here, right? But the disciples don't get it. Like John says, we didn't get it until after he died. Now look at the irony when you see these two passages together. Jesus, the king, is anointed for burial. Why is our king being anointed for death? Think about treason and betrayal. How do you think Jesus felt when one of his own chosen friends betrayed him? You see that, even the foreshadowing here, where it talks about Jesus or Judas, the one who would betray him. There's a foreshadowing of that heartbreak of betrayal, even in this chapter. Jesus, Judas cares for money more than Jesus. How about us? What do we care for more than Jesus? It, there is evidence in the other Gospels that what really, what really got Judas was that Jesus did not go along with his agenda and his plan. He was a zealot. The zealots were the ones who thought that they needed to band together and do battle against the Romans. And Judas thought Jesus was part of that. He thought that Jesus was about that. It can be very difficult when we wake up to realize that Jesus is not blessing our plans sometimes. And that's when the temptation to betray Jesus is often at its strongest. 30 pieces of silver wasn't very much money. But when Jesus, when Jesus has upset your plans and your dreams, it doesn't take much to betray him. And the people know he's a king. See, here's what's interesting. They know he's a king. They're just not willing to let him be the kind of king that he is. When, it, when they say Hosanna, that's from Psalm 118, verse 25. And this is a psalm that was sang every day by the temple choir during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles took place back in chapter 7 and 9 of John's Gospel. The next phrase also comes from Psalm 18. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Jesus' day, that phrase was understood as a reference to the Messiah King. The Messiah King is the one who will come in the name of the Lord and drive out the Romans. So when the crowd is chanting that and they're waving palm branches, which is how you uh, salute a king, they know that he's their king. You see that from the last phrase, blessed is the king of Israel. But here's the interesting thing. That phrase isn't in Psalm 118 at all. So they have two phrases from Psalm 118, but that third phrase confirms that they understand Psalm 118 to be about Jesus and to be about the messianic king who will drive out the Romans. And it's the same crowd that by the end of the week is going to be crying, crucify him. It's remarkable. And we can't separate ourselves from that. The same people that are saying, Jesus, you're the king, a week later are saying, crucify him. We're going to talk about how that happens. But you ought to understand, Jesus is the king and the one anointed for death. It's hard to hold these two things together. 
The Jews are looking for a Messiah to wipe out the Roman oppressors, but Jesus has other plans. And you know, it's fascinating, by Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that there's members even of Caesar's household who've been converted. So there is a conquering that happens, but it's not at all the way the Jewish crowd thought it would happen. And here's the thing, when we talk about the real Jesus, every one of us is tempted to make Jesus into our own image or to, to only like part of who he is. You know, some of us really like a Jesus who suffers with us, who's sympathetic, who's anointed for death, feels it deeply. We don't like the Jesus who tells us what to do. <laughs> we don't like Jesus the King who commands. And there's others who really want King Jesus to wipe away our enemies. But they don't want to be baptized into his death. But that's what Jesus models here, winning by death. We like to follow Jesus when the crowds are cheering, but hap what happens when the death anointing time comes? See, the real Jesus is the king who cares about justice and will make all things right one day. But he's also the one who's anointed for death. And do Christians, do you who call yourself a Christian in this room, do I look like one whose life began with death? Because that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is that you've died and been raised again. So your life, your real life, has begun with death. And that changes everything. Jesus refuses to win, or sorry, refuses to use an army, an army to win victory for his people. His victory will be accomplished alone. Even his disciples are going to scatter and desert him. And this is not the last time he will refuse to use an army at his disposal. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest him with soldiers, he says, I could call down a legion, an army of angels, but he refuses to do so. Why does Christianity proclaim that the way up is the way down? that we find our life by dying because Jesus our King died and changed forever the Christian's view of power and victory. But it was, a it was a paradigm shift that took a long time to get because the disciples didn't get what was going on. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. But that's the point of the donkey ride. Like Jesus goes out of his way to help us understand who he is and what he's about. He has great mercy on people who don't get it. So take comfort in that. But I want you to see here, Jesus is intentional. He's determined in going to the cross. He's fully aware. Nobody tricked him into it. He's in control. He's undeterred. Now what does that mean? That means that when you take an honest look at your sin and you find that it's intentional, you're fully aware, and that sometimes you just will not be deterred, well, you have a salvation that meets you at that point. You don't just have a savior who saves people who meant well but screwed up a little bit. Like the intentionality, the full awareness of Jesus meets your intentionality, and your full awareness of your sin.
Use that truth against your doubts and your fears. And, and I wish I could say that, you know, everybody in the church gets that. I don't know if they do. I, I remember years ago I was playing in this band. We had this song. I thought it was a really, really good song. But I remember we released this song. It was called Hang My Head and Cry. It had this line that I, I thought was really great. I didn't write it, but I, I thought it was a great line. It said, I pray, Father, forgive me, for I know just what I do. I want to hang my head and cry. And I remember we released that song. There was not a Christian radio station that would play it. They said, no. And, and the feedback was like, it seems like you're not really sorry or like you're not really trying to live a godly life. It's like, no, I think... Like, search your heart. Have you never been in that place where you, you've, you said, I know exactly what I did. I knew better, and I did it anyway. Jesus comes not for people who really get it and then just need a little help. He comes for people who know full well what they've done and do it anyway. And the only thing that breaks your heart is to see that love that is so intentional so fully aware, there's nothing in your heart, there's nothing you've done that's a surprise to Jesus. He's fully aware. He's fully intentional, and he's undeterred. And that's the only hope for breaking our hearts. Let's pray together.